Welcome to Human Rights Matters, where we examine matters of human rights because your rights matter. I am Dr. Reginald Frankship. In this episode, we will continue to examine what's going on in policing. In the second part of the series, we'll be discussing some broad issues impacting law enforcement community, highlighted by the death of George Floyd on May 25th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In our last episode, we touched on four broad topics impacting police service and the responsibility of law enforcement in protecting human rights. We discussed culture, recruitment, training, management, and leadership. Today, we will engage in a more robust discussion on police culture and the issue of institutional racism or implicit bias. Concerns about interaction between race and policing are not new. It's important to recognize that the origins of policing in the United States are linked with the country's history of discrimination, particularly against black people. The hunting and recapturing of enslaved persons, the regulation of movement, the criminalization of black people for economic exploitation, the enforcement of discriminatory laws, and the perpetration of violence, either directly or indirectly, police officers have been intimately involved. Some of the more blatant and egregious practices ceased a long time ago, but others are within the recent memory of those adversely impacted and are their history and experiences and shared by black and minority communities. It is easy to see how mistrust of the police and accusations of institutional racism and bias by black and minority communities continue to impact community police relations. There are many recent examples and action by the U.S. Department of Justice through consent decrees suggests and find that there is a pattern and practice within some law enforcement agencies that racial animus by the police may not be a thing of the past. Again, we do not claim to have all the answers, but we recognize that there needs to be an ongoing dialogue surrounding the many instances where citizens of color have died at the hands of police and the challenges within law enforcement community. In the last episode, we introduced the participants and their credentials as former law enforcement professionals, so we'll skip that portion and simply reintroduce our participants. Today, we are again joined by Maurice Davis, Mike Brown, and Lee James. However, today we are joined by one more participant, Kerry Watson. Kerry is a retired 20-year veteran of the Prince George's County Police Department. He served in several roles to include an instructor in the Advanced Officer Training Section, Vice President of the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge 89, and as a Senior Advisor to County Executive Russian Baker on Public Safety, Organized Labor, Economic Development, and Labor Relations. Again, the guests today are providing their own personal view as experienced law enforcement professionals. The views expressed should not be taken as an expression of policy or positions of any organization that they may be affiliated with. For some time, there have been accusations that within the law enforcement community, there is systemic racism, prejudice or bias that have negatively impacted communities of color, in particular, black and Hispanic communities. We'll use the term institutional racism for simplicity to cover terms such as prejudice, bias, or implicit bias. So my first question is, what specifically does the term institutional racism mean? 
Does it mean that the vast majority of law enforcement officers are racist or prejudiced? Or are actions deliberate? Or are officers acting in a manner without intent? That when you start layering a flawed system with policies that are inadequate or doesn't quite take into consideration the community's needs, mm -hmm. the type of community, when we start labeling communities as um, high crime, high drugs, um, whether it's driven by you know department statistics because it's a measurement to show how successful they are, the issue of zero tolerance that's layered on top of that, mm -hmm. which then causes you know, some form of harm, which I label structural violence, and then how do we ensure that quality or some form of quality is maintained? And we don't know the definition of that, uh, you know, at this point. What kind of things do we need to put in place to make sure that, you know, the vestiges of, you know, racism on which the system was built are exercised, basically, or mitigated? Mm -hmm. So I want to try to see if we can start off on something that we agree on. And the first thing is, uh, policing has a history rooted in the hunting of slaves. Mm -hmm. Are we in agreement or not that this may have been inception of this racism built into the system? Um, go with you, Mo. You want to start off? I think um, you know if you go back to uh, Sir Robert Peel and you start talking about how we got to the point where. Um, we had formalized patrols, certainly the patty rollers and the uh, chasing of slaves um, had something to do with how we started to learn policing because we had to um, keep the slaves under control. We had to make, put, intimidate them, put fear in them. And of course, when we finally got to the cities, uh, they put the slaves into one particular area, usually in a downtown area. And so fast forward to the 50s and 60s, we ended up with projects where we had um, uh, lots of um, people of color crammed into a certain area so that we can watch them and patrol that area as a area of uh, target rich for undesirables, um, which would have been, uh, i.e. slaves or um, people of color. And so, yeah, I would agree that slave catchers and policing are connected in some way. Um, I, I would agree with, uh, with that statement. You know, when, it come, when you talk about American policing, I think there's, there's a lot of roots in, in, in that statement. Um, you know, when, when I think about the fact that, you know, um, the department that we came from, the first two African-Americans uh, didn't get hired until 1967. But the department had been around since 1930, 1931. You think about it, all, all of those years leading up to 1967, you, you call a police officer for assistance, you getting a white guy. Um, so I think there, there's some, there's some uh, merit to, to certainly that, that statement. Mo mentioned the 50s and the 60s and the civil rights movement, et cetera. People trying to get their voting rights, et cetera. And when you saw the Bull Connors and you saw the officers that were preventing people or spraying people with hoses and sicking dogs and all that, th those were white guys. Uh, to, lead, to add on to that, you know, you make a great point when a lot of people talk about 
what our opportunities are in policing, in society, things like this, um, they forget how short that period of history, how, how, how near that was. I mean, you first officers in Prince George's County, black officers were hired in what, 67? Yes. Yeah, that is, that's one generation before me. Right, yeah. And to think that those two officers had any real input or any real ability to make a change in the police department, of course they didn't. The actual voices of color that could, you know, create some type of change in that environment. Right. Mike? Mike? Yeah, so I, I had an original thought and then I started to process what you all were saying. And if you take that 1967 to the presence and you look at the number of African-American police chiefs, police executives and elected sheriffs. And then I asked myself, did these folks buy into a system that wasn't designed with our best interests in mind? If we agree on that first statement that policing has a history rooted in, you know, the um, hunting and recapture of slaves, mm -hmm. then I would assume that we're going to be in agreement on this, that um, they also, the policing also has a history of enforcing laws that specifically targeting African-Americans and other minority communities. And they were also responsible for acts of violence or complicit in acts of violence that were not even legalized. True. Um, I, and I'll give you an example. Jim Crow laws, <laughs> I mean, really designed to, and, and segregation laws, really designed to keep blacks and whites apart, um, less than, treat us less than, etc. Well, who was responsible for enforcing those things, those laws? Police officers. American policing, again, was designed to, to um, keep certain folks like us in, in our place and not allow us to get the full benefit of this, of what we're really about. Any dissenting views on that? Actually, yes, I do have a slightly dissenting view. Okay. Um, I would make an argument as not only to do with race, it might even more have to do with money, socioeconomic factors. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at neighborhoods, let's use neighborhoods in Prince George's County like Woodmore, you don't see police patrolling the streets because there's not very much crime. It is a high, high income area. Uh, you don't see violence and you don't see violence from police officers uh, on black folks. Mm -hmm. Well, well I'm, talking, I'm talking historically. Well, historically, you're, you're right, you're right. Yeah. But I think, I think the source, the root of it has a lot to do with money. And if you have money, you're less likely to be impacted. But you said something to me once uh, not too long ago. It's one thing to be poor, and it's another thing to be poor and black. Mm. Now, the, the issue is whether you're wealthy or poor and you're black, you're, you're looked at by society as expected to be poor. Historically, I think if you have money, you're less likely to be impacted by those things. The problem is black folks are more likely to be poor than by, by ratio than anyone else. Let me ask this other question then. If we have a, the roots of a system designed to disenfranchise or target mm -hmm. minority or non-white communities, and the argument from either individuals or as a collective 
that there's no systemic racism within law enforcement, can anybody suggest a point in time where those attitudes from the 1900s, 1900s, or even to today, and where those perceptions, attitudes were exercised from the system? You know, no, I don't think we can say that. You know, <laughs> you know, the struggle continues. <laughs> you yeah. know, we've been in a struggle from 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 the time you know um, Africans were brought to the shores of the United States or the West Indies, as a matter of fact. And and a lot of that was uh, going back to what Kerry said was based on uh, economics. They needed labor uh, to in order to work the fields, whether you're talking about cotton or whether you're talking about tobacco. So. You know, I would say that the struggle continues to today. Yeah, so Reggie, I, I would say I would agree with that too. There's not a time where we could say that it was not exercised. You know, the thing about racism is it has a way of uh, metamorphosing itself. It changes. You know, it may look overt at one point and then it hides at another point. And if you look at our institutions, you know, it's embedded. Um, where you have to really look to find it, but it's there. If you look at in terms of promotions and business loans and, you know, how people are treated in certain uh, other businesses and policing, it might look like one thing, but it looked like something else. You know, in the 1970s, late 1970s, um, we had affirmative action. Affirmative action was so that we could make sure and ensure that people of color had an opportunity to uh, find themselves in a leadership posi position. And you mentioned earlier, you said that you, you hired your first black person um, in Prince George's County in, back in the 1960s. In my department, it didn't happen until the 1980s. So that's real close. And, and my department has been in existence since 1868, you know? Wow. So, you know, uh, there's not a time that I can see or I understand that uh, racism did not uh, exist in this country, as far as I can tell. And again, in 2020, with so many people of color in charge of these agencies, you have to ask yourself, why is this still happening? So, Reggie, Reggie, I want to just add on a little bit to that, if you don't mind. Um, what, what we're actually seeing today, you know, I know I mentioned, you know, the struggle continues, but as far as I'm concerned, what we're seeing is consistent efforts to even erode the gains that we've made over the year. Or whether you're talking about the 21st century policing reform uh, measures that were, or the, that the task force made, those things have been set aside by design. That is a pur there's a purpose to set us back intentionally. You've got some, um, some experience in these, uh, at least in um, implementing consent decrees. I want to go back to something that Mike Brown was talking about, where he, he mentioned that there's a lot of African-Americans and other minorities being hired as chiefs of police or sheriffs, mm -hmm. but this issue still um, continues. Mm -hmm. So even though there's been a, a push for more diversity within organizations, it still hasn't sort of rooted out those vestiges of, of bias within the system. Mike, uh, um, I guess you were going down that road. You want to continue? Sure. Um, my only guess could be is that if you come into a system that you don't fully understand and you buy into that system, then you'll continue to get the same thing. 
And it's interesting because more of our uh, people of colors in leadership positions have more formal education, but they still started at the bottom and rose through the ranks within a system that they probably didn't fully understand from a racial impact point of view. I want to just add something, you know, well, uh, one, I remember uh, it would be 1991, while I was in the police department, I was um, talking to a officer and we were, somehow we got on the issue of race. So he would have been hired uh, probably mid 1980s. And his comment was that at the time, when he joined the police department, when they stopped a car with African-Americans in it, they used to tell the dispatcher that they had a car loaded with coal. And for me, that goes to the perceptions within an organization that is legitimized. Mm-hmm. I mean, today, you probably couldn't you know, envisage that someone would call over a radio to communications and say something like that. So to go to Kerry's earlier point, there's this sort of attitude now that these things were removed a long time ago. It doesn't exist. But even after the 1960s, when you hired the first, you know, in, in, in the case of Prince George's County, or even until the 1980s, this sort of um, attitude was still sort of, you know, pervasive, I would say. Um, well, unless something changed, I'm still a number one male. Exactly. You know, um, so if these issues of, of diversity are being addressed, it hasn't rooted out the perception that there's still bias built into the system. I think it goes to the article that we read in the last um, podcast where we talked about the uh, community activist in Minneapolis, where he said that Chief Arredondo bleeds cop blue. He's a police officer first before his race and ethnicity. Now, I don't think that there's a, there's, I'm not making the accusation that somehow there's a deliberate intent to sort of um, disregard the concerns in, in, in African-American communities. But I think this is the whole underlying issue of institutional racism. Mm-hmm. It can be at times intentional as it was during Jim Crow where there were actually laws that were enforced mm-hmm. or it's intentional, unintentional by acts of individuals or policies that appear neutral on the surface but adversely impact these communities. You know, I think, Reggie, all of those factors um, kind of weigh in where we are. As you were talking about this last piece, I was thinking, you know, affirmative action, um, diversity hiring, and all of these things, uh, even the, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, all of these things didn't really take root uh, until a court decided or a court decision came down mandating them. So it almost seems like for African Americans in this country, we really have to depend upon change to occur through our court system. It seems that real change for us comes about as a result of court decisions. And if you're trying to now erode 
um, judges with different views and, and loading up with conservative views, you're stacking the, the deck again against African-American. Real change comes when the court steps in and makes a decision. All right, now let me jump on that for a second because I don't want to go too, too far astray from where we, we're heading on okay. this discussion. Sure, sure. But it seems like you're equating the appointment of conservative judges mm -hmm. who may be relied upon to um, make decisions that, that would even the playing field, if you will. So it sounds like the fear is that if we have a court loaded with conservative judges, that somehow that would negatively impact the African-American or minority community. Well, yeah, I would say to some extent, you know, that, that has been the, the, um, the direction I see. So let me make one more challenge to you on that, on that um, assumption. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call it an assumption because I'm not quite sure. So yesterday we saw the Supreme Court vote six to three that the yes. Civil Rights Act covers um, the LGBT uh, community. Yes. Um, is that, does that add or detract from your position? I think it, you know, yesterday's uh, decision was um, monumental, I think for the LGBTQ community. Um, but I think, you know, if, if, if the, the justice that, um, I think um, one of the conservative justices that supported that, um, that case yesterday. Gorsuch. One, yeah, Gorsuch. Um, I think it, it, it leaves open the opportunity for seeing that, you know, independent judicial thinking there is a place for that and i think that you know it really depends on the case you know so i'm i was optimistic about what i saw yesterday hmm. will that translate into other wins down the road for african americans in this country yet to be seen right well, okay let's come back on um reggie yeah yeah uh, if, if i could jump in for a minute yeah. and back to mike's point I want to offer a theory to why once diverse individuals gain rank and, and tend to lead these organizations, why things never seem to change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've tried to equate in some of my writing, I've tried to uh, compare police agencies with corporations. And when you get a corporation, they have kind of a, an ideal, you know, they, they, they offer to succeed in this company, there are things that you need to do, things you need to believe in, things you need to support. Police agency is no different than that. So you can come into a police agency with great education, great awareness, understand communities, have empathy and sympathy and understanding for the things that you're facing. But to succeed in that organization, you have to be completely engaged in it. You have to understand the rules of the organization. You want to get promoted, you have to obey and agree with things that are coming from above you. And systematically, as you ride, gain rank, if you're not abiding by those rules, you will not get to the place that you ultimately, if you're ambitious, want to go. If you become a naysayer, if you disagree, you will be held back. So your ability to make change disappears. What get there, you've gotten there because you obeyed the rules of the organization. You want comparison, you became CEO because you did what the company expected you to do as you rose. So you lose your ability to think differently. If you try to change, you will be held back or pushed down. So, you know, what we have to start doing 
and this is hard to do for people, for humans, all humans, is to reward people who think differently. Mm -hmm. Reward people who want to make a change and can articulate and train people as to the reasons why things need to change. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, we have decided that in order to grow, you have to be the same as everyone that came before you. Okay. So let, let me hold you there for a second. And I guess I'm, I want everybody to kind of jump in on here at some point. Mm -hmm. So listening to what you're saying, um, or what's been said, there's a couple things that are coming up. We've had the, the diversity issue um, trying to be addressed. We're hiring more, you know, minorities, females, um, you know, African-Americans. They're getting into more leadership positions. We're having a big discussion now about police reform. And it seems like what you're saying is that this is a legitimate concern because even though we've had minority leaders in positions of power within the organization, there still has been a lack of accountability to the community for the, the places that we've been, right? Why this sort of this uh, system persists, mm -hmm. but also it goes again to this claim that you're a cop first before your race and ethnicity because you're conforming to a process, an institution for advancement without really addressing the concerns of reform because we've been talking about reform within law enforcement for a long time. So this seems like a really sort of, a, you know, a cyclic sort of situation. I mean, so what is the what is the end result? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about accountability to the community, right? So how do you get individuals within an organization that, or an organization to in, inform or implement policies that address this sort of systemic uh, bias within, within the organization? So, so Randy, you, you started off your question by talking about a chief that uh, bleeds blue. And I think the answer is in, in, in that question, what does it mean to bleed blue? Does it mean that you have a separate and distinct organization from the organization? That's a, is that some type of code that says that uh, we take care of each other, but we don't obey the law, we don't obey the rules of society? Does it mean that we are separate and distinct from them, uh, in an us and them situation? Uh, so that, that, that's something that needs to be answered. What does it mean that you blew? Now, you could say, well, yeah, we have, we're all, we all former cops in one way or another. And so we all have this fraternity, sorority type of feeling. And, but it, it doesn't mean that, that because we are friends, because we work together, it does not mean that we can just ignore the community that pays our salary. Mm -hmm. and they put us in place. And the second thing is that um, I think that when you put police chiefs and you put a, a, a person of color in a high position and expect them to change an organization that's been in existence forever with racist practices and people who have been hired, you got what two thousand officers maybe in the department who have this ingrained um, systemic racist ideas, and you put a, um, a a chief who is basically a public figure. Um, he cannot change by himself, or he doesn't have enough time in his tenure to effectively change 
that organization unless the law itself. Somebody said, well, you know, we got to change the laws and we got to, yeah, the law drives policy. And that's what needs to happen. That's how you're going to change that organization. It says, this is the law. This is what you're expected to do. And now that chief has a chance because now he doesn't have a choice. He has to comply with the law by creating policies that support the law. So you're saying that with the reform within the police department or within law enforcement community mm -hmm. needs outside intervention? Yes, absolutely. Because, mm -hmm. because the police chief can't do it himself. Look at the data. How many African-American people of color, police chiefs are in place, and this is still happening. And it's, you know, and it's, and it's foolish to think that you can put a person at the head and expect them to change the rest of the body without some other community or outside intervention. Mm -hmm. Mike? It, it can't happen. You know, you just got a police chief who's detached from his majors, colonels, lieutenants, sergeants, corporals, officers who have this, these ideas, and he comes in by himself or she comes in by herself and tries to change that. And, and you're, you're expecting to change that apart, department by yourself when there's an element in the community that also supports that, the status quo. Right. Oh, Mike? So um, you ask, well, how do things change? Well, yeah, you can have a conservative, um, you can have a conservative um, Supreme Court, but we've had that before. And we, God has provided us with beautiful minds that were able to come up with arguments that was public arguments to challenge those ideas. And uh, we prevail because right is right and wrong is wrong and right always prevails. Hey, Mike, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I, I like Carrie's uh, analogy using the corporate structure. I think that was a good way of explaining um, selling your soul without coming out and saying selling your soul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but also um, something that, that um, I think Lee and Carrie spoke about, I, there's a brilliancy hidden within this. Uh, when you look at the Supreme Court judges and the appointments and all of that. And, and what I think the brilliancy of this is, none of this is done in secrecy. Everything that's done, it, it's all being done right in front of us. We're just not paying attention. Reggie, I want to speak on the, uh, the, the question you asked earlier regarding um, chiefs, minority chiefs in particular. It's a tough balance, man. Um, but really trying to understand, you know, how do you make this work for everybody? I think most chiefs go into these jobs with the idea that they want to make a difference. And, and part of the motto that we always use is that I want to leave this place a little bit better than it was when I got there. And so you try to work in, you know, try to understand your constituencies, what are the needs, and then you try to work to make those things happen. When you, when you talk, whether you're talking about the community, whether you're talking about the age, the, the, your, your bosses, or whether you're talking about your officers, you know, that it's a tough balance because what, what eventually comes about is the reality of the culture of the organization that you're in. One of the biggest things I learned is that you've got to listen to people. You really have to take the time to listen to what people are asking, what are they really asking you for? It really is overwhelming for 
minority police chiefs to think that they can go into these organizations and turn them around. Most police chiefs, the average is three to five years in office. That's not enough time to change a whole lot of stuff, especially when you're talking about the culture. Those that do survive and those that do last a longer period of time are normally um, in departments that are smaller to medium size, um, have a good relationship with the community, have good relationships with the elected officials, um, great relationship with the officers, but any one incident can change all of that overnight. Right. We've actually stepped into this whole issue of accountability. And so far we've, we've uh, hit that if we want to reform law enforcement, it looks like it's best um, if it comes from outside um, policymakers. What you're saying right now is, you know, last week we touched on the issue of recruiting, but in terms of accountability, if you're inheriting your command staff, you're in, in actually inheriting the entire organization, not only is recruiting an issue, but how do you maintain accountability within an organization where you have to set these parameters about what's right, just, um, and in best interest of your community, given that you have people within the organization that's existing that is not conforming to adherence to the protection of rights. Mm -hmm. We talked about the general orders, and we, it's a guide. Mm -hmm. So if we have these rules and policies in place that aren't specifically addressing abuses of power, basically, essentially, and it's even more egregious when you have somebody that comes in with racial biases, right? No academy teaches that. So they're coming from the community with this, this attitude already. They're now put in a position of power or with uh, power, right? So when you start layering this and you're talking about accountability within, what needs to be done? Because we already have policies in place. Do we need more policies? What do we need to do to curtail this undesired behavior within the organization? Because obviously when it goes bad, the organization is to blame. Uh, I'll speak on this for a moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I recently wrote an article, an essay uh, entitled Black and Blue, and I dove into this a bit. Um, and your accountability, uh, I've been frustrated over the last several weeks at the discussions about police accountability. Um, and, and I find that we're saying the same things we've been saying for the last 30 years. Uh, we need more community policing. We need more police accountability. We need to do better background checks on officers. Um, we need to find better recruits. All of these things we've been saying for 30 years, yet we're still marching uh, in the opposition of an act of murder in Minneapolis. Well, then you start asking yourself, well, what is the root of the problem if all these things are allegedly being addressed? But I, but I would argue we have never heard uh, a county executive or a mayor stand up in front of his or her community and say, you know, it's my goal that next year we will arrest 40% fewer people and we will write 55% fewer traffic violations. No, on the contrary, what they say is we are going to clean up the streets. We are going to get officers out there enforcing the laws to ensure that our communities are safe. They say, and then they hire a police chief who has been told, these are my expectations. Get the crime numbers down. We need better. So that chief is then incentivized and motivated to push that message down to the frontline officers. What you have is the weakest person in that totem pole that is told to go out 
and aggressively pursue people who have committed crimes. And if they, at the end of the month, if their numbers don't look like they've been doing any work, they are not promoted, they are not given transfers to jobs off of the street, all the things, all the rewards that would people are naturally looking to attain, they will not get because it is perceived that they are not working. Right. So, I mean, so Kerry, you bring up, it's, it's actually two issues I think you're, you're touching on there. Still, um, one is the task or the direction that's given to the police chief and the issue of crime reduction, but still, you still need some level of accountability within the organization because it, it goes to the heart of how these duties are executed. So again, what is it that needs to happen within the organization? We have already have rules and policies in place. What else needs to be done in terms of accountability to mitigate the exercise of uh, improper exercise of your position of power when you couple it with a bias or animus towards uh, minorities? So, Reggie, can I jump in there? Yeah. So I think there's a disconnect between the chief executive officer, be it sheriff or a police chief, there's a disconnect between his or her philosophy and the policy manual that you spoke of. So for example, we know that there's chiefs out here with policy manuals that were signed two chiefs ago. So does that chief's philosophy on policing is the policy in line with his or her beliefs or is the policy manual just something that's there because it's always been? I know, but again, what do we need to do if we're talking about accountability? So if we're talking about accountability, what else needs to be done other than policy to make sure that people are conforming to the things that we want to see where they're not abusing or abusing their positions of power in minority, uh, poor, or disadvantaged communities. The so, chief or sheriff needs to set the tone and it needs to come from the top and filter all the way down. But isn't that what's happening now? No. No. Again, as that disconnect. What's happening now is we follow this policy manual and we make decisions based on the manual as opposed to what's right or what's expected from our leadership. Mo, Mo you, you're saying something. Yeah, I, I was going to say what needs to happen now because we've tried that. We've put uh, um, chiefs in place, and just as um, uh, Kerry was saying, uh, I believe it was Kerry, that uh, he tends to be an island by himself trying to change a, a massive organization with thoughts, ideas that's been around for, for years. I think the answer is in what the public is doing right now, all the protesting. I mean, it's a scream. The protest is a scream saying, we want accountability. We want reform, and we want it now. We, why should we wait for you? you? We've been waiting. We waited through affirmative action, all this community policing, all this other stuff, and it has not changed. So to answer your question, uh, I think that what needs to happen is the mayor, the city council needs to get behind the police chief and says, go in. This is the idea. These are the ideas. Clean out whoever you have to clean out but blow it up. And I think the right idea, even though I think some people are you know, too radical about defunding the, defunding the police department, what they need to do is they, I think they need to think about um, they're on the right track by saying some services police don't need to do. 
I agree with that. And, and so we need to identify what is it that you want police departments to do? Well, one of the things I hear you saying, it sounds like you're talking about discipline. If you're well, talking me? about going up the system, yeah. No, no, I, I'm actually talking about accountability, being accountable to make change in, the, in your de police department. And um, yeah, I guess you could call it discipline, getting people out who have the wrong thinking. The time is now. You don't have, we don't have time anymore to have uh, men of color die at the hands of police anymore. So we want change and we want it now. And whatever we have to do, we have to be rigorous enough with ourselves, uh, the mayors, city councils to say, go in, get the right people in place, get the wrong people out of place. What is the, what is the problem with discipline at this point? Are we, is it not happening enough? It's not um, severe enough punishment? Because we're talking now, we've been talking about this issue for a really, really long time. Yeah. And if we're talking, we have rules and policies in place, and we're talking about accountability, and it's still happening, now we're talking about discipline. Mm -hmm. What is it that's lacking in the current discipline structure that will improve the current circumstance? What's lacking is that, it, you know, go back to the conversation about we bleed blue. We, we, we're taking care of people, and we are... Um, uh, kind of taking a uh, winking at things that we shouldn't wink at. Mm. We see an officer, if we see a commander, we see somebody that indicates to us by their behavior, by their thoughts, that uh, um, they're on the wrong track. We need to address it right then and there. We don't need to cover it. We don't need to hide it. We don't need to, we need to deal with it. And dealing with it, it may mean discipline. Because I think that's what the public wants. They, they, they want us to do something different. And that doesn't come easily. We just need to make sure that we're rooting out those ideas about old time policing and come up with a new model. But we need to make sure that we're doing what the community expects us to do. And we have to figure that out. What is it you want police to do? A couple points. When I was um, on the department, I was in charge of the the consent decree and the memorandum of agreement that we were given by the Justice Department. Uh, One second, why don't you kind of explain consent decree for dummies, if you will, so everybody kind of understand what we're talking about. Okay, so the consent decree that we were given came at the end of um, a long investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, where years, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, there were a lot of complaints of use, misuse of force. Um, or abuse of police authorities. Um, and so the police department was under investigation by the Department of Justice. And as a result of that, we were giving a, given a consent decree uh, which outlined specific requirements that we were to put in place to, to help us achieve some level of accountability to the community. And then we were also given a memorandum of agreement. Um, and it, by the way, the consent decree was specifically focused on um, the canine unit um, and, and the, the misuse of canine in, in, in a lot of cases around Prince George's County. And then the memorandum of agreement was more general that addressed the entire department, the policies, the procedures, et cetera, the training around use of force um, and investigations and things like that. So when we received those two um, documents, um, they were court ordered. We were given these two um, documents, the consent decree and the memorandum of agreement. And I remember one, one um, phrase in particular 
that was used by both the police chief at the time and the independent monitor at the time in reference to what we're trying to do with the police department. Um, and it had to do with accountability. And it was called changing the DNA of the entire organization. Right. Now, when you think about that, think about changing the DNA of anything. That's not an easy thing to do. Right. So as far as the consent decree was concerned, it took us five years, but we were able to comply with the requirements of the consent decree and the memorandum of agreement. It made for, and, and by the way, the police department did that in concert with the community. It wasn't the police department by itself because the community had input as well as the department. Um, and I'm not just talking about the command structure. I'm talking about, because I remember going down to the Fraternal Order of Police and presenting what the requirements were and, and trying to get buy-in from the, the Fraternal Order of Police. And, and, you know, for the most part, I think our department, you know, when I look back on, on that era where we went through a consent decree and a, and a memorandum of agreement, a lot of the things that were implemented, better reporting um, uh, when it comes to use of force, better investigations, your uh, special investigative response team, all of these things came about. Um, you know, uh, changing the, the way that the canine handlers use um, the, uh, the canine in, in, in response to some of those use of force things. So, so when I think back on a lot of that um, accountability measures that we were trying to put in place, I think the department is much better than it was prior to 2004, because that's when they came into effect. And, and I think it takes time. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, you know, one of the things I heard earlier, and I don't know who said it, but, you know, uh, whether change can occur from outside forces, I think the outside forces have, you gotta, you, you got to have that kind of impact. But I think most effective change will come when we have, continue to have people on the inside on these police departments that see the, the global picture and understand the global picture and can work within the structure that they're given, um, incorporating the community's views um, in order to make things better for everybody. So I'm hearing about defund and destabilize and dismantle and all this kind of stuff. You know, I think a better term, and a better term for me would be to redefine, and I heard somebody say it there earlier, redefine what it is what is it that you want the police to do and then support that what is it that the community needs from the police and then support that let me ask you a question leo back on this the consent decree issue yeah um uh, because i think it's important what was said in there the phrase that you use is that one of the recommendations was that they needed to change the dna of the organization which no, means then that no, that, Reggie, that was not a recommendation. That was the phrase that was used by the chief. Right. Oh, it was you. Okay. But to change the DNA of the organization. Mm -hmm. Now that means that whatever infraction was being investigated basically permeated the entire organization. Um, because you know, if it's within the DNA, it suggests mm -hmm. that it's widespread, pervasive. Sure. As as an organization. Sure. Right. Absolutely. So there was things that were done, were recommended to improve uh, the training uh, policy, how the canines or dogs were used. Mm -hmm. um, 
was there anything that talked about the way these infractions had been handled in the past in terms of if an officer was deemed to have, you know, used the, their tools inappropriately, was there any recommendation on, on increasing more uh, disciplinary um, action? Well, there were recommendations that addressed uh, internal investigations. And there were also recommendations that looked at, but more accountability around internal investigations, which would account for the discipline process. And so I think if, you're, if your question is driving at, you know, changing some of the discipline that was meted out or whatever, I think the, the recommendations, and I would have to go back and look specifically at the recommendations, there was over a hundred of them, but I would think that, you know, that there was measures or requirements in there that address, you know, use of force complaints and how does the department respond to the community around that? One of the things that we had in the county that a lot of places don't have, we had the Citizens Oversight Complaint Board. We have various you know, um, other com um, committees that have been providing input to the police department, to the police chief and specifically, around um, you know, not, not just use of force, but complaints. And so the, the community, giving the community a voice has been something I think that has helped us all along to get to where we are now. I wanna jump back on, um, on something that Kerry uh, talked about. Mm -hmm. And I, I had it in my notes as, as labels. Now Kerry talked about basically outside direction coming from politicians. We wanna reduce crime, we wanna you know, tackle crime issues, it's, it's statistics driven. Do, does anybody see a harm or sees how that sort of thinking, and especially when you start labeling communities as a high crime, high drug um, uh, community, when you layer that with an institution uh, form of bias, what impact does that have on the community as a whole when you start now labeling these communities like that? I, uh, I think you are leading toward a very good point. Um, I'm going to start out by saying what everyone has said is correct. All of those things are needed, but I think we would also agree, and please feel free to disagree, that not one single thing solves the problem. Not one single thing is the panacea. Sure. We want to have to engage in a number of different areas to create the change that we're really looking for. So to your point, Reggie, when I hit the street, and I worked in the community in which I was raised, I was hurt and disappointed by feeling the pressures of that community looking at me as a, as a sellout, essentially, because I put on a gray and French blue uniform, not recognizing that I was really wanting to make a change and wanting to do something different. So I am disincentivized, and, and I, I use these phrases a lot because I truly believe that people respond to incentives to be a part of that community anymore. They pushed me out. So I joined a different community and that was the blue community because I felt like maybe that was the right thing I was supposed to do. And that's unfortunate. But I have to recognize, and I didn't recognize it as a 21 and 22 year old kid, that there is a history that has caused that community to feel that way toward me. Okay, hold on one second. Hold on there for one second. Uh, because I wanna jump on this point. So you're, 
policing in an area that you grew up in and you feel that you're somehow returned on, you sort of embrace this new family, but the, the label that was given to that community in, from an internal, from internally, how did that impact the way that you police, if you feel comfortable answering that? Absolutely. You, 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 you end up joining this, this new community that almost perceives that community that you're policing as them. Mm. It is not us. We are not part of it. We are there simply to police it. And that is wrong. That is a problem. And you are not encouraged or incentivized to participate or become a part of that community because you go in there and you're working on a Saturday night and you see the worst in people all evening long. And I, without going too far ahead, you know, I, I, the, the best kind of officers, the kind of officers that we want to hire have great empathy, are thoughtful, are patient. But understand, if you are that person, if you are sensitive and empathetic and patient, Don't that job eats you up. You can't emotionally handle that for too long, it pulls you apart. So you either retreat, become hardened, or you break down. So we have to work on that part. And that's, again, it's just one part. And, yeah. and if a chief or leader is not willing to incentivize good behavior or encourage good behavior using incentives, people are gonna just fall into the same thing that everybody else around them are doing. Hey, Mike, you want to jump in there? I mean, this, this issue of labels and how you view the community that you're policing. Well, I think uh, Carrie is spot on. Uh, the only difference between he and I, I policed in a community that I didn't grow up in. However, the desire to do the right thing and make a difference was still there. So I got a taste of what Carrie talked about. The desire to do right in a community that rejected you versus uh, buying into a, a quote unquote blue family that may not have the community's best interests at heart. So I, I, I totally agree with uh, what Kerry was saying. Yeah, Mo? Um, you started off the conversation about uh, um, using data to label a particular community, what have you. And uh, if you're using the data to just simply label a community as a uh, target rich or, 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 or um, bad community, then certainly that's not a good idea. But if you're using the data as a needs assessment, see for me, if you have a high crime area or an area that uh, the data- Or as well police pay, service. The, the, yeah, what kind of, yeah, yeah. What, what kind of services do we need? What's, what, what's the root cause? of all that crime and what kind of services does that community need? You know, because, you know, what's the difference between a, a, a community that's not having uh, high crime versus a community that is having uh, high crime? Look at the data, analyze the data and provide the service that needed, that's needed. And the service may not be policing. It may be something else that needs right. to happen, like jobs. It may it might be that you got juveniles who have nothing to do. So you need recreation centers, you need uh, counseling, those kinds of things. So it depends on how you're looking at uh, the data that you're receiving from, from communities. 
So you're talking about um, addressing uh, crime issues with services other than police use of uh, police resources or police tactics? Yeah, looking at the root cause, cause uh, a root cause analysis of, of why this community has high crime. What's causing it? And it might not just be the crime. Now, if you're just going in there doing the same thing every, every, every day, like somebody said, every Friday night, I go into this community and I see the worst of people. And if you're going in and you're not going to, the organization is not going to try and change anything other than just enforce the law, then it's going to continue to be a high crime area. However, if you recognize that um, the community uh, has some needs and you're astute enough to say, okay, well, I need to get some other kind of uh, uh, other kind of folk in here to assist with these needs so that the community, so that we can reduce the crime. Now, uh, the data is really effective and I think you're using it appropriately. All right, Lee? Um, you know, I think when I was listening to Carrie and, and Mike and Mo, you know, I was kind of reflecting back on when I first started on a police department, man, and um, it was uh, in the early 80s. Um, and a lot of the things that I was looking for was um, guidance from whoever my field training officer was. And I had some good, I had one good field training officer that really taught me a lot about, you know, um, being on the street. He, he was a, a white man. Um, but the one thing I did learn from this guy was that he cared about the people that he was assigned to police. And, and, and he knew his beat. He knew the people in the beat. And the people knew him. But I learned from a good um, FTO um, what this thing was really about in terms of, re you know, relating to people, listening to people, going on these domestic calls and going on these uh, calls where you have trouble with your teenager. This guy actually took the time to, to share with me um, and, and to teach me the right way to do things. And, you know, the, the thing that, that I think overshadows all of what we're, uh, what policing is all about, um, are some of the, the negative things that we hear about, they take precedence, um, and that's what sticks in people's minds, when in fact, you know, most officers um, that have the right training, the right FTO, et cetera, um, even though they're coming into an organization that has all these culture, these issues, um, they're there for the right reasons. This will be a good time to take a break. And when we return, we'll continue to talk about understanding the community in which we work.